0: Welcome to the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE. As part of our summer special this week, we have an interview with Nick Bilogorski, cybersecurity strategist at Juniper Networks, who talks about how businesses can use automation to stay ahead of the threats. But first, here is Todd Beardsley, Rapid7's research director, discussing who owns the internet and whether Bitcoin will be the currency of our future. Enjoy.
1: One of the air quote problems of the internet is that there is no there is no central authority.
0: Do you think there should be?
1: No. Um, ultimately, no. It's it's difficult, right? Because like the thing about the internet is that it is decentralized and it is chaotic and it does like optimize for use. Like that's the whole idea. Like if there was a central authority back in like 1992, there would be no World Wide Web. We would all still be on AOL, CompuServe, Prodigy, like all the old ISPs with their own things. Internet um, technology tends to be pretty standardized um, and open, so anyone can do anything.
0: But they didn't think people would attack the internet?
1: The internet today is... Um, the mood on the internet today is much different than it was in you know 1998. Say, you know, like 20 years later... Um, it's the, the technologies that were invented back then kind of assumed everyone was honest and neighborly and you know kind of kept to themselves and connected to the things they needed and didn't connect to the things they didn't, to, didn't need to. And today we have every attacker is, is on the Internet, right? Like it was unthinkable 20 years ago to think that like, oh, well, we'll just have this whole giant global interconnected network. Where we're going to put all our stuff... And the, the problem with interconnecting every network is that every network connects to you. Um, and so it's it, 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 it it's a difficult problem. Um, the, the purpose of the research that we're producing is really just kind of that first step of measuring the problem. Like I said, we were surprised no one was doing this already. And if they were doing it, they weren't publishing. They weren't, like, sharing it out. Um, so we do both. We, we do the research, we do the analysis, and then we release all our data um, open um, that anyone can can look at to like come up with better ideas or look for different things that we may not have seen. So we will absolutely take any volunteers in a very open source science sort of way to like look at our data. Um, but ultimately, I do think it's on the ISPs to maybe target the things like that are on the internet, target the services that are on the internet that that shouldn't be there, that do present. Um, Risk that present exposure, things like database servers, things like internal networking um, protocols that shouldn't be on the internet. Um, We've we've made a lot of progress with with uh, a protocol called Telnet, which is what you use to like do kind of remote management on machines. Telnet is clear text; it's old timey. It was invented in 1979. Um, and it's just not appropriate for the Internet today. The the alternative today is called SSH. It is encrypted. Um, it is authenticated. You know who you're talking to, and you know that, like, that communication is secret. You're not exposing passwords or anything like that. Um, that is, like, kind of the silver lining on all this, is that I find a bunch of crap that shouldn't be there. But we are finding that Telnet is kind of marching down. SSH is marching up. Um, most of the world today is... Mo- most countries have a majority of ssh servers over telnet servers like it crosses that 50 percent mark at least um you know germany which has this weird sip problem also has like 90 percent ssh so they're like they're winning the war on telnet um but they are introducing new risk that wasn't there before
0: it seems that the east has a better understanding of the internet than the west so north korea russia iran um china would that be fair to say
1: um, I don't know if it is or not. Um, you know, in our, we, we rank all these countries together um, because we have all the data. So, hey, everybody loves ranked rank lists of countries. Like, that's why we have World Cup, right? Um, U.S. comes in at number one, like most exposed, um, just because U.S. has a lot of, a lot of issues. Uh, China's number two. Um, and China's number two largely because they have very similar problems as the U.S., um, they have a lot of exposed SMB, a lot of um, uncontrolled, like these UDP services that are uh, connectionless. They don't offer any authentication, and they're super easy to like subvert. Um, and they have like really fairly low encryption rates um, on like websites and like the Telnet thing I was saying. So anyway, they have a lot of the same problems that the U.S. has, just not quite at the U.S.'s scale. U.S. has way more uh, servers on the internet than any other country. U.S. is like 42 million. Uh, servers listening on on the internet that are responsive that are offering things, uh, whereas China comes in at about half that, um, you know. But despite that, China's still number two. So I I do think it's I I don't think I can make like an East versus West argument. Um, in Western countries like U.S., U.K., Germany, France, like they all have a a lot of stuff on the internet that also contributes to exposure. Um, you know, most places their IP their their. You, Th- there is an allocation of just a fixed number of IP addresses. Most places that allocation is like five percent servers, ninety five percent you know clients, just people. Um, and in in the I would I would say probably the biggest difference in the East, um, they have more local services than than the West does. Um, you know most pe- most places that are. You know, comfortable with English, um, that which is kind of the language of the internet, and for much of the internet, um, they are comfortable with going to U.S. based sites. You know, things like Facebook, right? Um, in in places like Russia and China, they tend to prefer local services more, and so they're going to have more of their infrastructure dedicated to that.
0: So let's talk about Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, you know, is it the future or the you know our financial ruin?
1: <laughs> Those are my two choices. <laughs> um, Bitcoin, oh man. So Bitcoin is a pretty great way to buy digital services. Um, and that's kind of where the use case ends. Like it's, it's not a great way for me to like buy a, a pizza. It's not a great way for me to, you know, pay for something, like pay my rent. Um, but it is a great way for me to pay for software. Um, because you can give me software, and I will give you this irrevocable cash-like transaction, and we're all and we're all great. But the thing is, it is irrevocable, and so it's also semi-anonymous. Like there are tricks to de-anonymize it, but the fact that it's very much like cash—you uh, know, cash itself is not anonymous. Every, every bill has a serial number on it, but nobody tracks it, right? Well. Almost nobody tracks it, unless they're really looking. And so you have kind of a similar thing with Bitcoin, where most things aren't tracked. But if you really, really, really needed to, you could. This semi, this this mostly anonymous nature and this um, irrevocable nature makes it an ideal currency for criminals. Um, makes it an ideal currency for libertarians who like don't want to pay taxes. Um, you know, it, it's it's great for those. It's okay for those use cases, but the primary the primary use case for Bitcoin is a digital currency for digital goods, um, and so it has kind of expanded and like it, it has expanded out to be like a like I say like a great currency for you know more dodgy things, um, and that's kind of kind of where I land on Bitcoin. It's neat and you know interesting and weird and. Anybody who says they actually understand Bitcoin is probably does not understand Bitcoin. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting experiment, um, just like the internet. <laughs> um, I do think that you know the blockchain that you know the blockchain concepts that underpin Bitcoin are themselves pretty interesting. Like the fact that you have this very distributed. Um, you know, record of transactions um, can be applied to all sorts of things, right? People are using it for like supply main- chain management now. They're using it for, I mean, we use it all already in like code development. GitHub is essentially a a blockchain of code commits. So I can say like, oh, well, then so- such and such. Like, I can prove that you committed code here, and then I committed code after that. We're both looking at the sa- we're both looking at the same thing. Um, so like, those kinds of applications are interesting. Um, you know I, I think that we don't know really like where it's going to be in 10 years just like we didn't know where the internet was going to be 10 years ago.
0: But do you see it being integral to our lives?
1: Um, I do in the sense that the internet is also an integral to our lives like even if you're not like an internet person even if you don't like hang out on the internet all the time like you rely on it to make sure that like food shows up at your grocery store, and I think blockchain is going to be fulfill like a, a a similar function.
0: And is it as safe as it's touted to be?
1: Oh, <laughs> um, I think that okay. So the cryptography behind Bitcoin is solid. Like that's like you can you can prove it with math, right? Um, I don't like I don't know any of any problems with the cryptography on it. Um, you are in a little bit of a race against like computing power, just like you are with like pretty much any cryptography problem. Um, but that said, like there are still a lot of problems with the exchanges, with the wallets. Um, so basically, all the endpoints that make Bitcoin accessible to humans—that's where your problems are. Um, the fact that it is irrevocable will work against the users who get their stuff robbed. Right? Like if you if you steal my credit card, which is a very now very old kind of financial crime, I kind of don't care. Like I'm on the hook for $50 and the bank will suck up the rest, uh, you know, and I can prove it. I can prove that it wasn't me, you know, because I can show like where I was. But Bitcoin is like, you know, picking money out of my, my physical wallet. I don't have a lot of recourse there. So... I think we have a long way to go to build trust in Bitcoin, and I know, like the Bitcoin people are going to hate me for talking like this. Um, and I do, I am a technologist, like, and I do like technology, and I, I, notionally like Bitcoin, but I think the the implementation is still pretty weak. Like, when you have a case where almost every exchange, which essentially acts like a bank, the thing that Bitcoin was supposed to get rid of, um, is a like a failure in that in that model, and b shows that when you have all these exchanges that have all had some major security incident kind of shows us, like, well, banks are actually kind of cool. They don't get robbed on the Internet all the time. But these guys do. So, like, I, you know, that, that to me gives, me gives me some pause.
0: That's a good quote. Banks are cool. <laughs> Never thought I'd hear that. <laughs>
2: I'm Nick Bilogorski, the cybersecurity strategist for Juniper Networks.
0: So, Nick, you you were formerly chief malware expert at at Facebook. Uh, So how has the threat landscape changed since starting at Facebook to where you are today?
2: When I was at Facebook, um, the threat landscape was primarily about botnets. And one of my uh, interesting job tasks at Facebook was to fight botnets like CoopFace that was trying to attack the social Network and compromise all of the users and send spam through the Facebook messages attaching the virus. This was back in 2010, 2011. Then I left Facebook to uh, become one of the founding members of Cyfort, a company that was eventually acquired by Juniper Networks. And uh, during the seven years I spent at Cyfort, the threat landscape changed significantly. It went from this massive worms and viruses that used to be very popular. And they were focused on financial gain and stealing people's data, stealing their credit cards, stealing their identities. It really became uh, what it is today, where a lot of the threats today are monetized through cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and ransomware, taking uh, ransom for giving people back their data or compromising their machines for the purpose of mining cryptocurrency, like Monero, Dash, or Bitcoin. So today, uh, I would say the threat landscape is... A bit different there's a lot more cryptocurrency malware there is still some old style botnets but uh, it's less so than before
0: and what's particularly worrying you these days
2: what's what's really new this year specifically is the attacks on iot specifically um cameras connected to the internet connected devices like routers we have seen several attacks really big attacks were um worms are scanning these devices, which are usually running Linux, and they're open to the internet, and people can log into them if they know the password. So these worms uh, are propagating and scanning the internet and trying all of these default built-in passwords and getting in and and exploiting a large portion of these internet-connected devices, IoT devices. And then using that... Uh, to perform denial-of-service attacks on public websites and bringing them down. So we've seen that with the Mirai botnet in 2016, and we've seen that more recently, a very similar style attack with uh, VPN filter. VPN filter was something that was uh, targeting routers specifically, and it was a lot more um, dangerous because it actually had persistent features. It would stay... uh, on the router even if you would reboot it and it had destructive features as well where it could overwrite the uh, firmware on the router and render it completely unusable. So those kind of attacks usually are nation-state sponsored and uh, they're political in nature or could be not focused on financial gain but more on damaging um, devices or spying at a large scale.
0: So we have the two, we have the nation-states and then we have the financial... Attacks,
2: Those are the motivations. Yes,
0: and so, do we have the tech to protect ourselves from these attacks?
2: Uh, yes and no. We we have a lot of different vendors offering solutions that solve the problem partially, um, but the truth is that a sophisticated attacker on a long enough timeline always gets in, and a lot of uh, companies are kind of relying on the vendors to protect them. And that is not working. The prevention, I would say, has failed. And uh, what companies really need to admit to themselves is that they need to invest resources into responding to incidents and cleaning up after the breach, because they will get breached eventually. So I would say that while we have a lot of different technologies lowering the risk, the risk is still non-zero, nowhere near close to that. And not enough emphasis has been spent on, okay, we know we were going to get breached, how do we find the breach ourselves? How do we respond to it, and minimize the damage from it?
0: So, how how can people do that?
2: What what people and companies need to do is uh, leverage automated machine learning-based techniques uh, to uh, to automate incident response. Right now, they're relying primarily on people training people to look through alerts that various products give them. They, they Uh, buy and deploy a number of security technologies. A lot of these technologies will send you alerts that something is suspicious, and then you have your incident uh, response staff that is supposed to look at all of these alerts, sometimes hundreds of these per day, and find the right ones and respond to them. So that approach is manual and doesn't scale, is not effective. Uh, What we need to do is deploy more code, deploy more machine learning techniques, deploy more behavioral analytics. Because behavioral analytics, when implemented properly, can simplify incident response and can automate these tedious tasks of incident response that can really help a small team um, do a lot more than it currently can.
0: But can hackers use those tools against us?
2: That's a very interesting question. Um, hackers can do anything we can in principle. However, what I'm suggesting is that uh, behavioral analytics can be used by uh, response staff to uh, look at a lot of different alerts together on a timeline and shorten the window of opportunity. So uh, in the way that hackers can probably use machine learning is try to devise more difficult malware to detect, more interesting malware. And yes, they can certainly use those AI techniques and machine learning techniques. But for this specific uh, case, using behavioral analytics, I don't think hackers could use that. This is more of a response technology and hackers are not responding to malware attacks, they're making them.
0: Of course, another topic you talk about is the skill shortage. Um, Do we have the right skills or enough skills in in, in the security job market at the moment and and, um, how can we cope better?
2: There are a number of talented individuals uh, in the market, but the demand is so much more than what they can offer. Uh, I mean, there, there are some estimates that there are 6 million positions open and 4.5 million people to fill them, so a significant skill gap. And just trying to educate more people and then train more people is probably not going to scale, which is why I implore people to, to, to supplement the human's with machines, and don't just rely on humans to fight machines. Use behavioral analytics, use code, use uh, machine learning wherever appropriate, so that you don't need a 10-person security team that you can do away with just six, because we just don't have enough of those people, and and every year we need more and more.
0: But the you know the the people you see, the the graduates you see coming to you, are they lacking something, or or, or at least what advice would you give them? and how they learn, how they think about things that you want to see.
2: I would advise them to, uh, you know, don't stop uh, their skill development at an analyst level. A lot of these uh, simple analyst positions, level one, level two analyst, may get replaced by machines and automated completely. I would advise them to learn to write code, to study machine learning and AI techniques, to try to automate themselves figure out what are the tasks they do frequently, and write code to to be able to automate those tasks. Because then they can get hired as tier three analysts, and we'll always need those. Senior analysts that can supervise code and look at the attacks that are surfaced by machine learning. You know, machines will never fully replace humans. It can augment us. It can automate parts parts of what we do, but I believe in an approach that works best where we use the hybrid technology, best of humans with best of machines. So uh, if anybody is starting to be a security analyst today, I would advise them to be a programmer and a security researcher because those kind of skills will be valuable in the future even when part of the job is automated.
0: And do the courses out there provide those skills?
2: I'm not aware of any specific courses that teach those skills. A lot of that might be you have to pick it up yourselves through online courses or online books uh, or or learn it on the job